0: I'm <laughs> Welcome to Media Path, I'm Fritz Coleman.
1: And I'm Louise Palenker.
0: We want you to use the Media Path podcast as your guide to pastimes that give your life meaning, like movies and books and television and theater experiences and streaming and broadcast and cable. And then we want you to hang out with us and meet very cool guests like today's Mark Arthur Miller, an R&B singer with a great new live show, an interesting family story. He is the son of the first white staff writer at Motown, and his greatest credit is, he's my friend. Ah! Oh. And I, you know, and I can't wait for you to meet him in just a couple of seconds. And Wheezy, I want that credit. Oh, you, you've what got. What do I it. have to do to? I don't have to say it with you though. <laughs> we get great reviews. Oh, we
1: get great reviews. This one comes from Kit, and it says the title is "The Comedic Intensity of a Thousand Suns." I know it. It's rather poetic, if hyperbolic. Louise and Fritz are a riot to listen to. The guests are great. The recommendations are always excellent. And Louise and Fritz go together like PB and J. If PB and J were two legends in the broadcasting arena. Seriously, give it a listen. It sounds delicious. Man. When you say it that way.
0: Uh, You know, with my delicate self-esteem, that was a really good review. Thank you.
1: And also palate, because those are one of the two things that you will eat.
0: The title of this next one is Delightful in All Ways. Oh, my gosh. Burns and Allen, Holmes and Watson, peanut butter and jelly. Wow. The chemistry. We must really come off like peanut butter and jelly what is the chemistry between fritz and louise is fun and charming with their smart observations and takes on a variety of interesting topics planker and coleman create the appointment podcast programming with no appointment needed well we don't know you but we love you thank you so much yeah
1: that and is that was awesome good. and now fritz see i'm i'm a little bit envious of you and also a little bit nervous because you've been going to the movies like in person i know I and have. Who sits, does someone sit like right next to
0: you? No, I've no, I don't go to movies where a lot of people are there. All I've right. been to the movies where I'm the only person in there. The Lamely Theater. I, and that—that that to me, that's the coolest experience. It's like the whole thing is for my benefit.
1: Okay, so you went to see what?
0: I went to see Spencer. And this is only in theaters. It's mm-hmm. not, it might stream soon, but not yet. It's at the Lamely. I went to the one in NoHo. This is a very surreal view of the life of Lady Di. It's kind of a, a reinterpretation of her life, which has probably already been over-scrutinized. The Crown, for instance, is a wonderful factual look at her life, in this movie, Spencer, focuses on a brief holiday moment when her marriage to Prince Charles had already peaked and was in free fall. It's her point of view showing how she suffered physically and emotionally from the family tension. This reimagining is what took place during one Christmas at the Queen's Estate, Balmoral. The whole point of this movie is to amplify and make you feel her discomfort, her eating disorder, her intense loneliness, her disconnectedness from the rest of the Windsor family. They use surreal flashbacks and dream sequences. One, which is really cool, involves Anne Boleyn, who was the woman that was married to Henry VIII and got beheaded. Mm-hmm. And, and there's an interesting parallel in the fear of both of these women because I think Lady Di thought that would be the end game if things didn't go well with Charles. Oh, my goodness. And uh, it, it's just it's a dream sequence that she has. Oh, okay. Has. But what I thought was the most powerful aspect of the movie was the cold, precise, and emotionless daily life of the royal family. It's, every person is is trapped in their own identity as a royal. It's the same feeling you get when you watch The Crown. The poor Windsors are solitary, lonely characters. One of the warm spots in the film is Diana's relationship with Harry and William, her sons. They are her saving grace, and she is theirs. Really convincing acting by Kirsten Stewart. Really I was surprised at how she really painted a picture of this woman and a really lovely turn by a woman I just love, Sally Hawkins, as Maggie, a member of Diana's staff and the one person she has a safe relationship with. You wouldn't want this to be your only source material to get you uh, into the world of Diana, but it's a great addition.
1: So in what ways is it more or differently revealing than The Crown?
0: It's, It's more surreal. It you 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 find yourself breathing heavily for this woman about halfway through the movie. It's depressing because they really go into her bulimia, they really go into the way she's rejected by the royal family and the cold reaction of everybody in the family, including Charles to her. And but, but I think that's the point. The guy that directed this movie is the guy that did Jackie with uh Uh, what's her name oh
2: right Uh, it it was
0: it was eerie but but it put you in the head of jackie and the emotional pain that she went through Mm -hmm. and this is the same journey for uh diana i i I thought it was great
1: yeah i look forward to seeing that so this is different fritz but you know how i do enjoy my book into movie and series experiences and so here comes one and it's uh the book is one of us is lying It's a YA title by Karen McManus. It's a New York Times bestseller named one of the 10 best books of the year by Entertainment Weekly, BuzzFeed, and Pop Crush. The story is sort of the breakfast club meets Clue. You've got the jock, the nerd, the bad boy, the pretty girl, and the outcast in detention together. One of them dies. The surviving four are now suspects. Okay, so on Monday, Simon died, but Simon hosted a spill-all gossip site, and on Tuesday, he had planned to post juicy reveals about all four of the classmates who joined him in detention, which gives each of them both motive and opportunity. The story raises the question, how far would each of us go to protect our secrets? The book is now a streaming series on Peacock, either the best or the worst streaming service name ever. It contains the words P and cock in its title. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but okay Those NBC people are smart. Yes. the series takes some twists away from the book which for me is part of the fun of watching and while the kids look to be closer to 30 than 17 they're acting and it's a story so enjoy One of Us is Lying is on Peacock the book is by Karen McManus and you can find it everywhere you find books
0: sounds cool I can't wait for the world to hear from Mason. Is this your first time talking
1: on our show? No, he has talked before, because remember he asked Ruth Mendelsohn questions about composing. Oh, oh,
0: oh, oh, that's that's true. Well, Mason is our fantastic engineer. He's the only person that understands how all this crap works. And and now we're gonna see if he can walk and chew gum at the same time. He's gonna run the show, (laughs) and then he's gonna discuss one of his favorite movies, which is also a favorite movie of many people called Shoplifting, or Shoplifters. Shoplifters. And yeah. you, you you, were so excited about this. You sent us an email about this movie wanting to describe it and said you wouldn't come to work unless we allowed you to discuss it.
1: Hostage situation. I quit. <laughs> he didn't let me talk about it. No, um, Yeah, Shoplifters, really great film, Japanese from 2017. It's a family melodrama, but the longer it goes on, the more you find out it might not be just that. Yeah. Um, But really i think the best quality of this one as y'all were talking about earlier just the acting and directing is so phenomenal um but i think my favorite element of it is just this slow burn that it has where it's uh so subtly heartbreaking it's not in your face about it and i didn't even realize how heartbreaking it was until like 20 minutes after it was over Mm -hmm. you know what i mean it's one of those that really stays with you after the credits roll yeah it's a movie about how kindness Maybe a more important quality than obeying the law, <laughs> like because these people are connected in a way that isn't clear to you. You know that they live together. There's just so much kindness. They're so kind to each other and they live like like barely subsistence existence in Japan. And then as it goes on, you find out how they're connected to each other. And uh, it. I think Mason – Summarize it best with the word heartbreaking.
0: And and the two things I took away from it are that you you find family anywhere. These people were not blood relatives, but they created a family out of the poverty in this particular part of Japan. Mm -hmm. Also, an interesting thing was the morality in the movie. Uh, Shoplifting is illegal, but they tricked themselves into thinking what they were doing is okay, because if you don't steal it from somebody after they have purchased it, then it's not bad. If you steal it from a store, it's not an amoral act.
1: Well I think that's what It's the, a
0: redistribution of wealth.
1: <laughs> yes, that's what the father Which that's we how need. the father is explaining it to the to the child, but he as he gets a little bit older he comes to kind of accept his own version of morality, as we all do, as we travel through life in terms of like what we're comfortable doing. And so the movie reaches a tipping point. And you saw the movie, too, right, Mark Miller?
2: I loved it. Fascinating. But I see a lot of Japanese movie and it did have a similar flavor and a morality and and a darkness to it that the movie that won the oscar a couple of years ago um the korean movie? yeah the korean yes. movie, yeah so it yeah. did have the, it did have that same sort of feel that it sort of creeps up on you and you don't know whether they're good people evil people or somewhere in between mm-hmm. <laughs> you know but I, I loved it so
0: that's a uh, good comparison let me yeah. introduce you so people don't think you're just an interloper oh, okay yeah, i
2: just walked in um, I, i'm so happy to uh, have open. this guy
0: with us <laughs> <laughs> the <house was> open. <laughs> you need to lock but, your door and i'm a shoplifter <laughs> 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 He's an R&B singer. His most recent album is Soul Searching that dropped in 2018. My favorite aspect of this album is his treatment of some of the iconic Motown hits. He blends them together and makes medleys out of them. He's wonderful. He's an actor as well. He was a nationally ranked tennis player at one time. And you understand his rhythm and blues DNA when you learn that his father, Ron Miller, was the first white staff writer at Motown. And it gives me goosebumps to read the hits his father wrote for stevie wonder for once in my life are you kidding me a place in the sun which is one of the iconic songs of the civil rights movement that 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 song
1: it's also maybe the best song from that period
0: oh my god seriously yester me yester you yesterday heaven help us all he also wrote touch me in the morning the diana ross hit and many others I'm happy to have my friend Mark Arthur Miller. Thanks for driving to Sherman Oaks my oh, friend. He, he,
2: he, no, I just walked actually. Uh, um, I know you know <laughs> I don't live that far.
0: Well, we are on a hill so. Yeah. Well, so. you and I uh connected because of our love of R&B music. My attraction was more mystical Because I grew up in the lily-white suburbs of Philadelphia. There was no reason for me to be as attracted to R&B as I was. Chris,
1: you don't know for sure that your father wasn't a soul. No, if you
0: met my father, there would be no tracing back. Are we sure
1: he's your father?
0: (laughs) Well, that's a good (laughs) point. That's Anyway, I had limited exposure to African Americans. Mark, however, grew up in the south side of Chicago, where most of your friends were black.
2: No, no, all of my friends were yeah. black.
0: <laughs> You'd be the only white kid doing the front porch harmonies in yeah, the neighborhood, which absolutely. is where you learned your chops. Talk about that period in Southside Chicago, late 50s, early 60s, Yeah, and uh, what it was like.
2: Uh, it, I, I just feel blessed that I sort of had that different Bringing. Um, my father, you know, I, I talk about this in the show. I decided to do a show based on my father's work and songs that I wrote and telling this story. And the, the thing that I always find most interesting about the story is the correlation between I didn't see my dad for 10 years uh, from six to 16. He was the only white writer at that point for Motown records. And I was the only kid living in a black neighborhood in Chicago. My grand I was living with my grandparents and they were the last white family. Uh, it was during white flight as they called it. And everyone took off. And, um, so I grew up with soul music, trying to convince my friends that the name on the record was my dad. <laughs> And they didn't believe me That's not your dad Made you write that record Talk about the
0: first time You heard one of your dad's songs On the radio And you're running around The neighborhood Going oh my yeah, god no,
2: You know I, I found out Because someone had seen His name on a record You know And I wasn't even sure That he was writing Or you know I was probably Eight years old Or something mm-hmm. like that And uh, I got the 45 and just raced to my best friend's house and said my dad look at my dad wrote this that's his name and you know he i think he jokingly told me that i didn't know who my real father was anyway but (laughs) but um you know those fritz it turns out yeah yeah neither did fritz we have the same
0: father i can feel (laughs) exactly
2: (laughs) you guys so yeah so it was it was it was different you know i mean as time went on um my friends started to realize that that actually was my dad, even though he was not in my life. He was living in Detroit, and I literally didn't see him from the time I was six to sixteen. And then my sister sort of called Motown, looking for him, and and tried to get in touch with him, and uh, left our home number because he wasn't there. And then he actually called us back.
1: So he, you use the word estranged in your in your bio material that your dad was estranged from you, but the way that I interpret that. Clearly, since you're a child, is he's estranged from your mom? He's not probably estranged. He didn't. You didn't piss him off. He's estranged. No,
2: right. But I didn't. But but you know, unfortunately, not to you know, my dad got another family and didn't didn't, he
0: didn't see. Do the work.
2: He didn't see us. He didn't do the work. He didn't help support. He didn't you know. So there was no reason for me to actually want to. You know, my mother didn't have a lot of great things to yeah. say about him. So, but you know, like any kid. You still, there was always that. Any boy, especially. Yeah, any boy. Yeah, any boy, you want to know who your father is. And plus, uh, to be honest, I knew my love for music and my love for acting i mean i at six years old i walked into the living room and made a grand announcement to everyone in the house that i was going to be a professional athlete and a performer and then that's exactly what i did for the rest of my life so i knew that bloodline sort of i felt it you know i felt that there was something about my dad that was the same in me so you know knowing that he was writing these records i always knew that i was going to figure out how to get in touch with him and he you know he Called us back, and then eight months after he called us, we were out in Los Angeles living with him. Let, so it happened. Let, let me that just get some
0: backstory. Before yeah. he went to Motown, and he was still living in Chicago, was he a composer? Was he writing music well, for other people, or what? no?
2: He he wrote music. Um, he wrote stories. He was one of the first people at Second City with uh, Brock Peters and Avery Shriver, who were his close friends. Um, but he was yeah. also trying to support you know, two kids. And so he was selling washing machines at Polk Brothers. And I think, you know, when I look at it, um, I don't think he would have been a writer and, and done all that he did in music had he stayed with my mom.
1: Oh, wow. So what age you know, were you when he left? And did you learn more about his relationship with your mom that made it so that the result was you guys had no contact with your dad?
2: Yeah, there was a lot of different things. My dad was sort of, you know, crazy. He went to, married someone else, had other, other kids. Uh, I, I don't think he wanted to look back, but I think he always, you know, I, like I said, I saw him on and off from the, from two to just like six, mm-hmm. you know, and he would visit and then all of a sudden nothing for 10 years. And I remember having one other phone call with him somewhere in that 10 year period, but nothing came of that. And then when we were older and we were 16, then he came out and we met him at the airport and, and, uh, you know, it was, I gave him a big hug. He gave me a big hug back, almost like we had seen each other a few days earlier. But we hadn't seen each other in and, 10 and, years. And,
0: and so when you reconnected with him, then that just coincided with Motown's
2: move to L.A. from Detroit. He had already gone to L.A. Oh, okay. So they had already gone because I met, I met him back up in 73.
1: In, uh, what year did you go to L.A.?
2: I went to L.A. in 74. Now, did you, do,
1: do I look vaguely familiar at all?
2: Yeah. Because I bit.
1: worked in that building from 1982 to,
0: like, I don't know. The Motown building yeah. in Hollywood?
2: On oh. Sunset. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 82, I wasn't around. Yeah. yeah, and I were already traveling and going back to New York and Chicago and all, and doing the rest of my life, you know. But, but in that I,
0: building, Mark, in that building,
2: you rubbed elbows with... Everybody. Marvin Gaye, everybody. Smokey, all And in the people. studio that was on... Um, You know, uh, the studio behind Trader Joe's and by the park. Yeah. Um, um, What's the, by Formosa, down the, you know, uh, what's the street, I'm thinking. (laughs) Um, That's where the Motown studios were as far as where they recorded. So I met everyone in the studio. So when we
1: were at at Premiere, if somebody pressed a Motown button, because I wasn't going to press it, but if if someone pressed a Motown button... You know, the doors open, I'm always like, all right, where's Smokey? You know, yeah. like, because sometimes you'd see somebody.
2: Yeah. yeah. Oh, it course. was
1: exciting when the doors opened.
2: Oh, well, for me, because, you know, I, li- I literally had singing groups on the south side of Chicago that I was in, and I was the only white guy in the singing group. So, you know, when I met Smokey and Stevie and all those guys for the first time, I I was, you know, I just, you know, they and, were and idols. Your, and
0: your dad was there at the pivotal time, Holland Dozier Holland. These guys are like the Mount Rushmore yeah. Of songwriters and uh, Fuqua was there, and yeah. and uh, what was the other guy? There's um, another guy,
2: and and so how did your dad get along? Being the only, they loved my dad. My my dad, they loved him. I mean, you know, he, First of all, my dad would fill up any room, like I, I talk about in the show. He he had such charisma. That he'd make everyone laugh. He'd tell inappropriate jokes. Everyone was okay with it. He was a womanizer to the umpteeth degree. Sounds like- um, You know, he was he was crazy. He had a lot of he had a lot of demons and a lot of talent, but he was fun to be around. You know, he wasn't fun to you know try and get him out of trouble because he got into trouble a lot. He did have a gambling addiction, and that ruined a big part of his life and a big part of his royalties and a big part of my royalties but that's <laughs> the great part about your
0: live show your live show is R&B and you do some of your dad's songs but you do your own songs and the what, what everybody that sees that show and I saw the most recent manifestation of it at the El Portal Theatre in North Hollywood is fantastic directed by who the famous Broadway director?
2: Glenn Glenn Cassell
0: Glenn yeah. Cassell and uh the arc is fantastic because your father went through a lot. I mean, he lost the rights to all of his movies because of his, his song. and yeah, uh, yeah. not his movies, his songs, yeah. but, but all of this is corrected in the third act of your show with reestablishing his relationship with you and then being a partner of yours, allowing you to do his demos and stuff for oh, yeah. him. It, it was, really yeah, ends yeah. on a great, like, uh, It warmed my heart to see how you were able to work your way back into his life and he into yours. Yeah,
2: I think it's when people come out of the show and they, they, you know, I have people coming up to me crying, saying, "I just, I just called my dad, I just texted my dad, told him I loved him," you know. So that's the most rewarding part of the show. Truthfully, is is that there's something about my story that everyone has with a parent. It's maybe not the exact circumstances, but everyone has that time with their parents where it could have gone really bad and never existed again or could have been real sour or or ours ended where we were like just great friends and buddies you know I wouldn't say he was at all times the best father because there were so much times that he wasn't around and he had so many demons that you know whether I went to school or not or had discipline he wasn't the best at any of that so uh, he was so much fun but he he really believed in my talent and and that helped a lot, you know, for all the years that he wasn't around. The fact that he was so positive about what I did and, and, and my singing and my writing and things like that really sort of made the end of our relationship before he passed some of the best times ever. I mean, it was really terrific.
0: Yeah. Did he reestablish his relationship with your sister and your mom
2: or no? My sister, yeah. Yeah. My sister, of course, because she came out to live with us out here. We both came out. Uh, My mom never. Uh, No, they weren't going to ever, you know. I mean, was your
1: mom comfortable with you reconnecting with him?
2: No. Um, I talk a little bit about the show. She finally realized that I had to go, you know what I mean? I mean, I had to go see what it was. I mean, all she had to say, because honestly, my dad didn't do right by her in the, in the normal way i mean they did get divorced it didn't end but you know he wasn't always there for support for us and things and that made things difficult so i think there was a lot that she didn't want to forget um as a kid it's different but as a kid you also like i said before you also start to realize that some couples aren't meant to be together (laughs) based on what they want out of life and what they think normal life should be. My li- dad was never going to have a normal nine to five job life. That just wasn't who he was. And consequently, that's never been who I am either. So I could never have done that. So I'm I'm a lot like him that way. You know. Did you
0: hang out with your dad when he was working at Motown? And what was that
2: vibe like? Oh, the best. That was that was the best. I mean, I'd go and hang out in the studio with him for days because he would go back then they had money to burn. Mm hmm. In the studios, they just threw money at everything, you know, which they don't do anymore. And he would redo songs and remix them and remix them and until it was, you know, and I'd be in the studio the whole time. just So he was uh, producing, too? Yeah, he was producing, too.
1: And he wrote lyrics and music?
2: Always lyrics, sometimes both. Yeah, but but most of the time, always lyrics.
0: Stevie Wonder must have loved his talent because
2: oh, they were oh my gosh, they were so so close.
0: Really, the best song Stevie did, in my opinion, before "Songs in the Key of Life," that era, all these nineteen sixties hits were his best records.
2: Well, they did a radio. Uh, uh show with about seven eight parts all about stevie wonder some years back and they had my dad on and my dad literally says he taught stevie how to write wow. <laughs> i mean flat out says it now i don't think stevie would agree with that yeah. but my dad says he, i did i taught him how to write he was writing horse but stevie shit. played
0: we were... like 15 instruments yeah I was, so.
2: stevie was a genius but i remember the first time the, meeting stevie for the first time was amazing because he was in the studio before us and we were waiting to get in. His session was ending. My dad was going to be in and Stevie was running a little longer and I had never met him. And my dad said, come on, let's go meet Stevie. And I'm like, I'm going to meet Stevie one. And I just got out to LA. So we went in there and they were listening to the track that the last track that they had were working on. And everybody's, you know, just grooving to the thing inside the studio and Stevie, Stevie's there. And uh, my dad walks up to Stevie from behind him, puts his hands over his eyes, and he says, <laughs> guess who, motherfucker? <laughs> <laughs> and that's was, and then for the next 30 minutes, all they did was those type of bits. So Stevie would see my, would know my dad was next to him, and he'd bump into him, and he'd say, would you watch where you're going to my dad? <laughs> and wow. th- And every time they saw each other, that was the rapport that they had. But the amazing thing about this is he met my sister and I that day in the studio. Two months later, there was a Motown party at Yamashiro up on the hill. Okay. And everybody's on the dance floor dancing. And he's got, Stevie's got his baby in his arms, dancing with Alanda, you know, mm. I think it was Alanda, and just a baby in his arms, and just dancing with her on the floor. And it was outside. And my sister Julie and I go on the dance floor to dance. And we just said I we probably said hello, Mr. Wonder or something like that. You know, I don't even think we said Stevie. But we said two words, maybe three words, and he went, Mark? Julie? Wow. And I was like, What? Is your dad here? He knew our voice. He had met us one time.
0: Wow. Pretty amazing. Did you see Hitsville, USA on Showtime, the documentary? Yeah. I watched it like five times. Yeah, it was so good. It was <laughs> yeah. so
2: Oh, absolutely. Good. Yeah.
0: And uh, I was trying to plug your dad into the Motown environment, but it sounds to me like Barry Gordy was very progressive. I mean, he had that the white guy who was his main sales guy that would go out and get the records played. So he was not racist at all, even though he wanted it to be an African-American enterprise. He yeah. still had white people in there doing stuff like before that was even accepted
2: oh yeah well you know he he got guys he was a smart he got guys who thought knew how to handle money (laughs) so yeah and yeah I mean I don't I think Barry wanted to be successful and that meant whoever he thought was best for the you know and Barry didn't make you know listen there's a lot of horror stories about about Barry and and you know my dad and Barry loved each other and then at times hated each other you know like a lot of people when the boss is making decisions he's not always making decisions that you feel are in your best interest Mm -hmm. he for once in my life which to me is one of the greatest songs ever written you know that was recorded by stevie and in a drawer for a year
0: oh wow you everybody
2: know. thought it was a hit except one person. Who was that one person? <laughs> Barry Gordy. Barry didn't think it was a hit. And finally, Suzanne DePass and a lot of other people said, Barry, this is a yeah. hit. That, I, 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 one of my that favorite
0: out. scenes in hitsville I, I don't know if he did this when your dad was working there, but he would gather everybody in the office and they'd play a song and everybody got to vote on whether they thought it was a hit. And nobody thought My Girl was going to be a hit. No, they <laughs> happened
2: to a lot of songs. Yeah. <laughs> Unbelievable. Yeah. But I don't know. When you hear "My Girl" now, right? Would you ever think that no. that, that wasn't a hit? Like the like if, if from the first guitar strumming, you'd go, "Okay, I'll buy that record." Yeah,
1: I can remember being at a, a radio event, and the Temptations were, were the act on stage. I think it was just Melvin and Otis. I'm not sure who who else was in there. But you know, like you see young guy, young guy, like, "Oh, Melvin, okay." <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, I was I was with a friend of mine from Premiere, and he said, "Look around." He said, "There's not one person here who's not smiling." I mean that—that's wow. the reaction. You cannot hear that music and not just be smiling. Absolutely, it just brings out the light in everyone.
0: I, I said this in the piece I wrote about race that you heard.
2: Oh, and I this love, is, which I love. This is
0: true about, about my family. My parents were not overt racists, and I and I I try to draw the line very specifically in 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 my writing in that they. They were never exposed to African American people, so they didn't know how they felt. So they didn't like, you know, young R and B, rock and roll that I snuck in the house and played in the basement, but Motown music. And some of it was getting to see how slick and polished and non-threatening they were when they performed on the Ed Sullivan Show and yeah, these other talk Barry shows. Which Barry
2: did on purpose. Yes, oh, yeah.
0: no, yeah. it was brilliant. And and then that, I always said that that music, the Motown music was a bridge between my interests and my parents' interests when I was growing up. It was the one thing, it, it didn't happen right away, But after a while, it sort of warmed up our relationship and their appreciation of what I appreciated. So it It was the first
1: industry that was sold where the product was sold to white people, like you know across the board. There were other black-owned industries like Fuller Brush, where when white people found out it was black-owned, they started to boycott it. But he went Barry went straight to kids, thinking kids aren't going to care, and he he got that right down the middle.
2: Plus Barry, you know Barry was quality you know so the songs were written uh, you know like some of the other people the more southern soul was a little harder and a little more mm-hmm. gritty and it and it didn't stacks yeah it didn't get across quite as simple it wasn't as poppy mm-hmm. you know and it, and it seemed it didn't have so, strings and yeah, yeah, exactly and it and it seemed you know it didn't have the choreography and stuff that was sort of i guess to white people more white you uh, know
1: yeah maybe but it, i think you know, th- also it was like barry's attitude was was we are ambassadors this is the civil rights movement we're in it we're ambassadors oh, yeah. Yeah. and he understood his role in history yeah. no, that's I, the he, thing about listen
2: it. he you know all geniuses have their you know goods and bad but he was a genius for what he saw in the future you know how he copied it from you know the the Car manufacturers, you know, right. like the assembly line yes. thing. He, that's how he worked there, and he said, "This is how it works, and this is how it can work with music." You know, and it did. I mean, I listen to Motown. You know, I music always comes up in my car, and I, I, if I bought a specific CD, I'll listen to that for a while. But I have it on shuffle all the time, and there's so much Motown music on my thing that it comes up every day. I'm listening to a Motown song along with brand new stuff that I've just but by pop artists of today or jazz or whatever and i listen to it in reference to all the other stuff i've just heard like the last 10 or 12 songs and i go this is still a hit Mm -hmm. this is still a hit song
0: what drives me nuts is there's no serious xm motown channel
2: (laughs) No, they're all gone.
0: That I don't know. They have an R&B channel, Channel 49. I listen to it all the time, Soulsville or whatever it's yeah. called. Why uh, is it? it I, I bet it has something to do with rights because the Beatles did not release their music to Sirius XM, which I listen to all the time, uh, until way late in the program, like over the last five or six years.
2: Oh, well, speaking of the Beatles, I just heard there's a great documentary coming out in like two weeks or something. I haven't heard about it. I just found about it last night. But speaking
0: yeah. of documentaries, they had Hitsville, U.S.A. They had the Funk Brothers standing in the shadows of Motown, which was fantastic to learn about. That I think there ought to be a documentary about the writers, Holland Dozier Holland, all those people, yeah. Smokey, you know, all the people that wrote those hits and how they did them and the collaboration and everything.
2: Yeah, I you know I I always maybe it's just because of my dad, but I I would part of the reason I love doing the show is that. You know, if you go on YouTube and look at some of the songs my dad wrote that were done by Stevie or some other people, and you look at the comment section, the comment section is full of, oh God, one of Stevie's best lyrics that he ever wrote, uh, <laughs> you know? Because he became a
1: writer, people think that throughout his career exactly. he wrote Exactly, they
2: think that everything was written by, and that's, the writers, forget just my dad, there's a lot of writers who just don't aren't known I mean yeah. no one knows that they don't get their props when you see this unless be they're your writers next and performers and singers you know then then obviously they do but yeah
0: you should this should be your next documentary
1: yeah like there, I yeah. need to pro- spend yeah.
2: another <laughs>
0: eight years chasing down rights oh, I know yeah. exactly I know. that
1: was fun yeah yeah,
0: yeah. that's a hard uh, thing but yeah
1: so I want to know because you talked about how therapeutic it was to create your show it sounds like you were throughout your teenage adult life you were you were dealing with these feelings, and you were processing your childhood and making it make sense by having this parallel with your dad, like I'm the only white kid here, he's the only white kid there, you know, like we're, we get each other. But like how did actually creating a show, what did you learn about yourself and your
0: relationship through the creation of that show?
2: Hmm. Wow. While you're thinking about- She's good. She's really good. (laughs) Let, Let me,
0: because I've seen the most recent show tell you, sort of answer your question for him. Pretend you're not here, Mark. No, no, uh, this this is going to be a thinly veiled compliment, but, uh, but um, in the show, he, he salutes his dad, but the arc of the show is by the end of the show, he's an individual talent that has got the light shining on him now, which is a really wonderful thing. So he's not living in the shadow of his dad. He took his dad's talent. He took his dad's partnership and became his own person because he wrote, a lot of these songs in Soul Searching, uh, his, his album from 2018, it's the same thing. So it's really a cool passage that all sons of fathers, whether they've become successful at whatever they do or not, sort of your mission as a son is to step out from under the shadow of your father and establish your own identity on the planet.
2: I, I don't need to speak.
0: <laughs> no, you speak. I didn't mean to. But
1: well, no, one of the gifts at, that you absolutely. got from your dad, like despite some of his other shortcomings, one of the gifts that you immediately got from your dad at sixteen was his approval. And there's people in their seventies still trying to achieve that, where the dad is just withholding of that. That was one thing he was not.
2: Well, that, it, and also what I don't, you know, I, I will talk about as far as the transition of the show. The show in its infancy. Uh, was probably about 2012, 13. And it wasn't what it is now because I was just putting seeds of the Motown stuff and seeds of the stories of my dads into other cabaret shows, right? So they were a mishmash of a bunch of stuff. And I finally said, this mishmash doesn't work. Tell the story you want to tell, the whole story. And also I was doing... I was getting hired to do Frank Sinatra tunes and stuff like that and whatever. And I was turning every standard classic standard Sinatra thing into an R and B rhythm arrangement, you know, and I went, let's stick to what you really want to do. So it it sort of grew and finally became where I finally sat down and went, okay, forget all these stories, write a script, you know, now what I don't, what I've changed in the show over from the first time we started doing it was the first time the show was done, I think people left the theater depressed. Okay, because there it was there was the sad stuff that I had to work through from from my dad. I mean, he was great, but he had so many demons and it was so hard. And he was away for so long and and uh, my mom was married to a terrible stepfather. Oh. So I was really mentally abused by my stepfather. So coming into, so my dad was great because he did, wasn't like that at all. He had his own demons, which in, uh, affected the whole family, the gambling the, and stuff like that. But he wasn't cruel in that sense that, uh, that I had come from that. So leaving my mother wasn't that hard, even though my mom was great, but she just didn't have good taste in, you know, men. So all that sort of had to be pulled out. To tell the story, yeah. Plus, and your it, feelings
0: about your dad evolved over time, of, of different course. from when the be when right. you first put the show up to this most recent thing I saw, right. and it is uplifting. And I thought to myself, you know, with all these jukebox musicals now, The Temptations one that the that Weezy saw and loved, I'm, oh, I think I love it's just temptation. a natural right yeah. now. I, I really feel that if you got this in front of the eyes of the right person, that they 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 could. Help you tweak it into something that would be nationally. Well, very... we're
2: we're hoping I mean, you know, I, w- I would love that but You know, it, you know, I always knew that that my dad and I ended before when he passed in 2007 I knew we it was the best it had been the best 20 years of our relationship, you know So that, w- that was great. But That's why the show every ends, right? actor like I am and singer or whatever we want to do drama first, right? So that's how the story sort of went. And then I went, wait a second. There's a lot of great stuff here, and let's end this show talking about how I really felt and how much he was there for me, not how much he wasn't there for me, you know, and, and, and not focus on, yes, we talk about the gambling a little bit and whatever, but it's not the focus. And Glenn Cassell, to Glenn Cassell's credit, he kept pounding on me because this was the first time I had the show directed. He kept pounding, this is about your dad until this point and then the show is about you.
1: Yeah, yeah. it's fantastic. He says
2: it's got to be about you. Yeah, mm-hmm. he's right. You know.
1: And then you know, maybe you were holding back and thinking like, well, it, you know, it needs to be a this needs to be about the songs that people are familiar with and yeah. if it's about me, it's too much me, me, yeah. me, look at me. But yeah, in terms of story, that's what people yeah. need to see. Well, they they need, need to see Plus, you heal. Yeah.
0: All the thing yeah. about his dad really is a subconscious way of explaining his talent. Right. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. This is this is why I am the way I am, and here's what I am Bang, and He ends with big up tempo shows. Yeah. I, I I love the new manifestation of the show. Yeah, that's it's been my favorite. I, I, think, I mean, I think,
2: but like when people do movies or plays, or they come out and they and they say, "Oh my God, this we never heard of this person or this show or whatever," and you go yeah he's been writing it and trying to get it done for 15 right, years that You know, that, yeah it... yeah that's how long it took for me to get it to a place where i go okay i think i can pretty much leave it alone now yeah you know i mean i'll tweak you know you always do you always tweak and stuff like that but but i can pretty much go okay my book in asian all ml take it and put it in front of people and i think if you book it and put it in front of people it'll be put in front of more people. I mean, I'm confident. So about I, that's always the way yeah. it is.
0: Let's talk about the other aspects of your career. When you were in Chicago, you started a theater company.
2: Yeah, long, 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 long time ago now. Feels, well, if you have any like memory a... of it, describe it. No, it was me. great. Um, me and a, me and six other actors, you know, I mean, Chicago was booming then. You know, the Steppenwolf was everywhere. I had taken classes there. I'd been in New York City, uh, doing some acting and got married there in 82 while I was a young broke actor. And, uh, then I did some theater in Nebraska and all over. And and then I met some old friends in Chicago when I moved back there and they were like, let's, um, let's do this. So we did, we were one of a thousand Theater companies back in Chicago, the and best one, because, Steppenwolf, yeah, Steppenwolf were, and we did great work. We got, you know, I was nominated for some Jeff Awards, and and we did some good stuff. Um, you know, we never got a big big name like some of the big ones, but we did. I did a lot of acting. I mean, I know there was probably a five year period where I was on stage mm, for the entire five years, except for maybe a month. That I wasn't on stage, so it was from show to show to show to show. Well, show it shows to show to show in your show stage
0: show. presence, in your live show, because of your command of the stage and your comfort up there. You can tell that all that is muscles you've exercised in other ways, because you're really comfortable on yeah. stage. Yeah,
2: although I, I, you know, I I do believe that. I think the more you do something, the more comfortable you are at it. And but I, I'll be honest, I was that way when I was like five.
1: Well, you put, you started putting in your ten thousand hours when you <laughs> yeah, were, right. you yeah. know, five years old in the living room. I'm sure you were always putting on a show.
2: Always, Con- constantly. My my mom used to very tell, well received. My mom used to tell the story about me doing uh, um, a, a musical in fourth grade. And in fourth grade, all they do is they they put all the kids in a semicircle and then the kids step out and say their line, and step <laughs> back in line, step out, then step back, and sing their part and whatever. And none of the kids remembered any of their parts. And it's Gilbert and Sullivan, and I played the captain. And the music teacher says, you know, this show doesn't happen without your son, because I would literally push the kids out, they were frozen, stiff, nervous, and then whisper their lines or their lyrics in their that's ear. Funny. And she goes, your son memorized an entire Gilbert and Sullivan show, he's in fourth grade. Wow. <laughs> you know, so that's, so I think I sort of knew I was, sort of born to do this yep. you know yeah. you know i don't have a lot of skills and a lot of things but i have a few things that i do so talk about your tennis talent you were a nationally
0: ranked tennis player at one time correct
2: yeah and i'm still a coach i coach every day i just got off the courts before i got here i know who's was the day?
1: most famous person you ever played a match against
2: oh good question um i think i played elliot telcher once who was top 20 in the world top 10 in the world and I practice with I hit with Jimmy Connors I you know that's
1: what I was going yeah, for
2: yeah I, I, hit with going Jimmy for. At, I hit with Jimmy at, I'm um, like this
1: guy looks about the age yeah, of Jimmy yeah. Car
2: Con- well I was a little younger than Jimmy I, yeah. it was, I was at the uh, LA Tennis Club and uh, he was waiting to hit with Stan Smith and they were going to practice and Stan was late and my buddy was late and Jimmy said Jimmy saw me with a arm full of rackets because you carried all your rackets back in those days they weren't in one bag they were like you had four or five yeah. rackets under your arm and um, he said, uh, you know, he obviously thought I was a player because if I wasn't, why, why would I have rackets. all those rackets? One racket will <laughs> do it. <laughs> one <Yeah>. racket, <laughs> he wasn't going to ask me if I had one racket. Yep. And so we hit for about a half hour. And uh, it was great. Did he call you, know? you any
1: names or
2: anything? No, no, he was you know? a nice, he's a great hit. You know, we didn't miss. I mean, I wasn't going to miss, I'll tell you that, because <laughs> I knew he wasn't going to miss. Where do you hear about
0: this new movie with Will Smith called King Richard, oh, who yeah. is the father of the Williams
2: yeah. sisters? I'm, uh, I hope
0: it's good. I'm, I'm praying I, it's I,
2: good. Yeah, I mean, you know, I don't think it's going to be bad. I'm interested to see if it tells the story, some of the stories that I know <laughs> to be true. I bet but, you
1: know about... Tennis parents, because I I know a lot about tennis parents because my parents had a condo where Nick Boletari had his tennis academy. and I And so I watched all of this stuff happen. In Florida? People shipping their kids down there. Oh, yeah. And the kids would live there. And and we had friends whose kids were there, and so we'd go stop in on the kids because the parents are back north and, you know, like, how are things going? And their only kind of, like, uh, metric to measure how they were doing was who they could beat. It, no, I just thought this is a sad and lonely way for a child to grow up.
2: Yeah, I don't, you know, I, I mean, obviously with my life, I push kids to be well-rounded. Um, and then I'm very disciplined when they're in my world for that hour or two hours that i have them because most of the kids i've worked with my whole life are very accomplished players i've teach beginners and and intermediates and adults and I've every level but i'd say 90 percent of the people i've worked with have always have been players who are going to play in high school college or beyond
1: okay so do you t- ever talk to the parents about what's this doing to the child emotionally and, and always okay constantly so and what,
2: that's the, the toughest part is the parents
1: and what's your message for for any sports parents really
2: stay home <laughs>
0: wow.
2: Like the stage moms,
0: please stay
1: if they in the know, car. They don't know how to do that, though.
2: Yeah. do they? Nope. But you know <laughs> what? No, because There's they're living rules. their own unfulfilled oh, dreams. Yeah. And, and also, yeah. First of all, they're not allowed on my court. Okay. They don't. They don't stay on my court when I'm teaching their kid. Even though they're, they sometimes are knowledgeable. Um, they've had their kid. Their kid is very good. Accomplished they're trying to get them to the next level and next level. and they're already at good levels, mm-hmm. but you know How do I say this it would not be too ins a lot of the parents have been great the, the only trouble I find and I and I'll and I find this and not just parents of tennis players, but but people in general that I've taught is that Tennis is a rich sport so you're teaching people who have enough money to pay for tennis lessons and tournaments and equipment, it's not cheap. So you're talking about successful, monetarily successful people okay. who are the parents. Right. They're usually CEOs or, or lawyers, or di- I mean, they're very successful people. <laughs> and unfortunately, successful people who make money know about something very well to have made that money. Mm. They're experts at their subject. Okay. But unfortunately, people who are rich Not think tennis. they know about everything. Right. So, I have money, therefore I'm smart. Therefore, I'm smart about everything. And why do you have a coach? Yeah. Why do you exactly. Coach? Why do they even have a coach? Because they don't. A lot of them don't even play tennis. Or if you saw them play tennis, you'd go, "Please be quiet." <laughs> have you seen yourself hit the ball? You know. So yeah, I mean, it it gets a little annoying. But that's why most of the time they stay off my court. But I, you know, I can't tell you how many parents I've said the same joke of like, you know, can I charge you for this? Cause my lesson was four hours ago and you called me up after dinner and now you're keeping me on the phone talking about your son or daughter. Right. That should be costing you something, and they're not talking or asking questions. They're giving me advice on how to coach their kids. Wow!
0: Do you do mainly kids or do you do adults as well? You no, don't... I
2: do adult. I do adults, but I am mainly kids who are moving on or up the ladder of tournament, you know, competition. I had a, a, a great teacher, Barry Horowitz and, and Paul Pews. We had a, a, a big junior program at Mountain Gate Tennis Club, Country Club for. Uh, 22 years we ran that program. It was one of the top programs in the country. Hmm. Oh. Um, and then it's faded since, and, and we're no longer doing that. Um, and, you know, we're all teaching, but just privately on our own. I don't, I'm, I'm, you know, my body doesn't allow me to do it as much as I want to, so I'm almost semi-retired, hence why I need to do more shows. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, it was a pretty... It was pretty much a big part of my life. And I love to coach. And like I said, when I made that announcement in my living room that I was going to be in sports and performing, that's exactly what I did. Because I I have a, a real strong love for both of them. You know, I also played basketball in junior college and had some scholarships in that sport. So I'm a jock, mm-hmm. you know, who loves music and loves to act. So, you know, that's uh, sort of...
0: before we go, I want to ask you about the makeup of your band. I know that your keyboardist is your main collaborator.
2: Oh, yeah. Brilliant.
0: So describe the guys in your band. How many you have? Are those the same people that you'll go on the road with when you go to New York? And uh, if, if,
2: and... if. if... Peter Smith is is, is a, a brilliant composer, arranger, um, musician. Uh, he will go wherever I go if he's not doing something else because he works with a lot of different people. But he was the co-writer and producer on my album, uh, co-arranger on my CD, and, and he's always my musical director uh, unless there's a show that I have to replace him because he's busy. Otherwise, I would never replace him. The musicians I have, I've used a lot of... A lot of the same guys, Frank Abraham, Gene Coy. Um, you uh, showcase My, your
0: great background singers. Yeah, did, Maya Sykes
2: wonderful. and, and Kenna Ramsey did the last show. And they have big careers on their own, so I feel lucky when I get them. Yeah. Um, and I've used different people because I can't always get exactly where I want, but then they give me recommendations on people who fit in brilliantly. If I go out of town, I just bring Peter. Because mm-hmm. as of right now... The show doesn't make enough money for me to bring everyone with. And then we hired musicians. We had a great band in New York City because Peter's from New York, so he hired a bunch of great musicians. And there's great musicians everywhere. And the network of musicians that we know know musicians everywhere. You you know what I mean? It's sort of like a family, no matter what state. And what
1: are you noticing about live performance coming back to life? Uh, Are people... Comfortable showing COVID cards in different states or different? Does every venue have different rules? How is it working?
2: Well, I mean, you know, when well, you did your show, most recent show, everybody it had, was
0: it was closed down. You had to have a mask on when you walked. Yeah, you
2: there. had to have a mask on, and we only were allowed one hundred and twenty okay. because it was like the first time things were opening. Yeah, so there was numbers put on things. Now it's much more open. I really, I don't know if I, I, it would be hard for me just because of how i feel about things yeah it would be hard for me to accept a, a gig at a place that didn't require covid cards
1: Car, uh, vaccine cards yeah. and masks or just vaccine cards
2: vaccine cards at least and then masks when you're walking and then when you obviously when you sit down you can take it off because you know i mean i i understand that you know it's better to watch a show without the mask but i would you know as of right now i think health for everybody is number one, mm-hmm. you know, I, I'm just, I feel strongly about that. So yeah. I saw
0: you at the El Portel. Yeah. And then
2: I saw you
0: at an earlier manifestation of the show at Catalina's Bar and Grill. Yeah. Is that where I saw you? Yeah. Is that the size venue you like? What, what, what's a comfortable size venue for
2: you? Um I, you know, it, the size venue, I mean, it's really intimate, obviously, at yeah. Catalina Jazz, and I've done my show there. I, I can't even count how many, I can't count on one hand how many times I've, I just got a phone call a couple weeks ago from Manny asking me to do the show there again. Um, I love the intimacy of that show, although the sh- the recent show that you saw, Fritz, it's got so much more to it. Was it bigger. it yeah, was bigger. Yeah, it's big. a bigger show. It, it's got... 60 light cues it's got videos it's got photographs you know so it's it's a much bigger show and to be honest i want to do the bigger show because i don't make any money doing catalina's
0: (laughs) Oh no. <laughs> you Plus know, uh, you lose the impact. Not that this is the most important part of your show, but you lose the impact when that record with your dad's name on it, the Tamla Motown label comes up in like 30 foot letters. Yeah. It's pretty powerful. And me
2: walking down the center with that silver suit. And yeah. it's, a, it's a great <laughs> it's image. Pretty cool. It's a great image. And, 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 and it's funny cause you know, Donna, mm-hmm. my beloved, she loves the show Intimate. I mean, she loved the new version. She loved so many things about it, but she loves that intimacy of the, of the show. And so do I, because the crowd's right there, and and you, you feel them. And I, I will constantly do those shows. But as far as financially getting it out there and having people, you know, bring it to a performing arts center and, and the fees that they will give you to do that or a university or something, you know, makes it a little more feasible. Actually, if I did more of the bigger theater shows... I would then do more of the smaller shows Mm -hmm. because I could afford them and not have to make, you know, so much. I I make I afford to pay the band or whatever, and if I do it and just make a little, then it's fine if I have some bigger shows, you know?
0: Right. Weezy and I were talking about the documentary about Ella Fitzgerald. Have you seen that? I haven't seen that yet. I just saw it. It's really wonderful, but the whole thing uh, for me was, I'm watching this and there are 40 people in this band. I said, there's no way you'd be able to afford to take a group that size on the road now. no unless you were doing Carnegie Hall in every city.
1: I think it's why the big band era was so short. Yeah, You know, after World War II, it was kind of almost over, wasn't it?
0: And especially it's when so the players were all union players and you couldn't cheat those guys out of money. You had to nope. pay them the union minimum.
2: Well now, I, we talk, uh, all my musicians, friends, and I talk about when I first came out here in 1990, um, I was acting really and I hadn't really started singing. I mean, I had sung my whole life, obviously, but I mean, going in that direction, I was going for television and, you know, so I put the music sort of on the back burner. But I was still getting with friends saying, "Okay, come do this gig at this club or downtown at the upstairs at the hotel or, you know, so I was doing a lot of casuals Mm -hmm. and you didn't make a fortune, but. You made twice as much 25 years ago doing a casual than you do now. Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. They don't pay anything now because they just plug music in now. So they don't need you. They don't need a live band. So if you want the gig, you have to settle for so much less. Wow. You know?
1: I would think that things might shift when downtown spaces realize that no one's leaving their home to go retail shopping no one's leaving their home unless they're gonna go have an experience. right An experience is one thing that will pull people out of their homes. Like that's why if you if you walk to the mall near your house, you're gonna see that there's cornhole and ping pong and you know and, yeah. and, and giant chess. you know they, you need to bring the kids somewhere where they can do something because yeah. you can do all your shopping, all your Christmas shopping you can do online. So what's going to pull people out of their homes? It's got to be experiences. So maybe some of this retail space that's gonna dry up, Will become performance spaces. I hope.
2: So. I hope because you know anybody can plug in their music at home. So if you go to a bar and it's just plugged in music, up it has top, to be. I mean, you
1: can do that yeah. at home. You are right. Yeah. You have to give people an experience that they can't yeah. have at home.
2: Well, all right. So, so if people want to buy Soul
0: Searching, which yes. is your latest album, where do they go to find that?
2: Everywhere, Apple. Okay. Amazon. It's, and it's if at 150 people want to hear clips things.
0: of your uh, show, do you have a YouTube channel?
2: Yes, I do. Mark Arthur Miller. Okay. Is that yeah. your name? I'm yeah. just kidding.
0: Okay,
2: okay, <laughs> MarkArthurMiller.com, everybody. Com. everybody. Yeah, you All get, right, Fritz. Yeah, there it is. Yeah, see? Oh, oh there, there. Look there, at that I I handsome am. guy. Wow. nice picture, actually. Yeah, I love the I was, black young, and white I was younger there.
1: <laughs> nah, it's just the lighting. Uh, so, Fritz, where can people find us to give us a nice review that we could read well, on our show next week? if
0: you enjoyed this episode of yeah. Media Path, it would help us to be more discoverable by potential new listeners. If you leave us a quick review, as these nice people earlier had done, on Apple Podcasts, and if you're new here and this is your first time with us, please check out our back catalog. We have, I think, 70 episodes now. Uh, it's all binge-worthy, I'm telling you. We have guests like Anson Williams and Marion Ross on separate days, but both oh, iconic actors from Happy Days. We have Bill Schnee. Do you know Bill? Do you know Bill Schnee? No. Bill he Schnee. He is, is uh, maybe the most employed record uh, engineer. He's got 125 gold and platinum records. He's Why he's, don't he's amazing. Done, he's got... Uh, he He's did got Barbara a book Streisand. You can learn all about him oh. in the book. Oh. Oh. He did Barbra get... Streisand. He did uh, Ringo Starr's first solo album. He recorded it at, at, at uh, Apple in, uh, in Abbey Road. Abbey, Abbey road, road, yeah. yeah. Oh, unbelievable. Ed Begley Jr., who is an actor and environmental pioneer. Bill oh, Medley Ed. of the Righteous Brothers, who's back on the road with a residency in Las Vegas. So there are many wonderful interests that we approach in our shows. Thank you for spending an hour with us. I love we it. Can be...
2: I write a uh, brilliant review about yes, this week's show? Yes. Uh, we insist that if you
0: want to. Invited back <laughs> right now. And we would be overjoyed right, if a moment to wasn't... share our thoughts with Who's us. M-A-M? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Oh, here come your closing credits. We would love for you to join us online on Instagram and Twitter, where we are at Media Path Pod and on Facebook where we are Media Path podcast You can find full episodes with all kinds of bonus visual content on our YouTube channel, Media Path Podcast. We would love to know what media you've been enjoying. Mason told us what media he was enjoying and we enjoyed sharing that with you. You can contact us at our social media. Is that where you found us, Mason? At our social media or email us at Mediapath at gmail.com. We want to thank our wonderful guest, Mark Arthur Miller. Our team thank includes you, Dean Friedman, Francesco Demanda, John Maddox, Sharon Bellio, Bill Filipiak, Thomas Hubble, Mason Brown, and you. Our theme music is by me and John Maddox. I am Louise Palenker here with Fritz Coleman, and we will see you along the media path.